0: You are listening to Prevention is the New Cure, all things health and NHS podcast with a political twist.
1: With me, Dr. Helen Stokes Lampard, and with Steve Bryan, MP.
0: Hello, Helen.
1: Hi, Steve. How are you doing?
0: Unbelievably, this is episode
1: 20. I know, a score. A score of episodes. I
0: know. How have we kept going for this long? Anyway, so much to talk about. We're going to be talking about men's health. More about that later. Excellent. Last time we were talking about cabinet reshuffles. Um, my brother-in-laws and I used to describe something else as a cabinet reshuffle, but that's a story for another day. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, we, we're talking about um, Elton John, uh, tattoo yes. parlours, yeah. and uh, New Zealand's U-turn on their, on their smoking legislation. Um, what are we going to talk about this week?
1: So, well, we obviously, we're going to be talking, can I, can I do a trailer of who we're going to be talking to later? Yeah, go on. Go on. Well, we've got Charlie Bethel, who is the chief executive of Men's Sheds, and I'm really looking forward to that. And if you have no idea what a Men's Shed is, apart from the thing at the bottom of the garden where you store all the junk.
2: You will find listening.
1: out. Um, but look, Steve, I'm really curious, what was Elton John like?
0: <sighs> well, do you know what? I've never met him before. And I wouldn't describe myself as a massive Elton John fan. Um, he's absolutely lovely. And do you know who's really lovely as well is David Furnish, his husband.
1: Oh, was David there as well? Who's
0: just so, he's just, he's just so in love with him. And you know what? You know, he, I said, oh, you laugh in all the right places. And he said, well, I just find him very funny. <laughs> and, you know, they've been married for years and, and they're just, they're just such a lovely couple. And yeah. he's, we had a chat with him and then he spoke in Speaker's House to this sort of assembled audience of people from Parliament and the HIV community. And it was basically the all-party group on HIV and AIDS, which I and a few others run. And it was us Mm. inviting him to thank him for the work of the John AIDS Foundation and the work they've done. They've raised about half a billion dollars since it started, you know. Half a billion? Yeah. And... And he, I mean, he could pick up the phone to anybody and they'll take the call. But so basically he, he spoke and he spoke brilliantly about, you know, his motivation and how, you know, he was, you know, he was on the wrong side of drink and he was wrong side of drugs and his friends were dying and he felt that he was doing nothing. He felt he was doing nothing to help. And he felt like a selfish, useless person, his words. Um, So he set up the Elton John AIDS foundation and there, they helped so many people, and so yeah, and he spoke brilliantly. He's very, he was very funny. He had this um, great long speech that he ke- he kept reading, and someone had obviously written it for him. But it was very much from the heart as well. And he kept he kept plowing through page after page, and he kept kept going on and going on. Um, And and but what was great is that it it announced it came on the same day as the announcement from the government they were going to extend this opt out testing which for those people who don't know basically when you go into a and e department because you've fallen off your bike or had a road traffic accident whatever they take bloods and they would but they wouldn't test for HIV uh, unless you asked to opt in to it yeah. we flip. we flipped that and we now do opt out testing um in emergency departments in high prevalence areas so you know london brighton
1: mm-hmm.
0: seaside towns basically and what the government announced on the day that elton came the power of elton um is that we're extending it to 46 more emergency departments in england and and that is so cool because so yeah. far i've got the figures here right so far that we've been doing this opt-out testing for the year or so we've been doing it We found 569 people living with HIV. Um, We found a couple thousand people living with HBV, And what that means is, is that, you know, they can then take the HIV drugs, which Mm -hmm. means that you equals you, they can't pass it on. And so that's how we are going to get to zero HIV transmissions. So, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. Elton was, Elton was lovely and he didn't sing.
1: Oh, pity about the not singing. I mean, surely that would have been a bonus, but I'll... You know i'm really glad you got to meet david furnish as well okay i do have i have star energy i've had a crazy start to the week um I'm in, i've been in clinical practice and oh my goodness respiratory viruses are definitely on the app um, and in fact did you, i don't know if you know but if you if you ever want to look for the hard weekly data of what's going on on viruses respiratory viruses there's the the oncology gps have got this research surveillance center is based at oxford now which monitors all the infectious diseases and publishes every week data freely available to anybody. To look at and uh, you can see what's going on infectious disease in the under 15s particularly uh high uh, but you know we always get these seasonal stuff but i've had no mega stars in my consulting room at least none that i can tell you about anyway but
0: what is think- this what is this hundred day cough which it's been nicknamed because there seems to be uk health security agency mm-hmm. we're talking about this new respiratory illness and, and i'm i'm just trying to look up the name of it oh, no. Bord, it's- bordel bordetella steve do you You're tell t- me what it's called?
1: It's called whooping Cough, mate.
0: It's whooping Cough, but it, that's it, the technical it, name for it.
1: Bordetellipotestis, yes. Yeah, so it, it's whooping Cough. So whooping Cough has, of course, been around forever, well, for you know, decades and decades. Um, and we've had a vaccine for it since, I think, about the 1950s. 60 certainly uh, and a, a very effective vaccine but this is one where this was the first vaccine scare came around whooping cough um, and so there was a massive drop of intake uh uptake and then it flared up massively in the 80s and but now uh uptake is is better again the, yeah it's called often called 100 day cough particularly when our older children or adults get it because the cough really lingers and it's a nasty cough and it's got quite a characteristic <laughs> Sort of hoop noise. Sorry, that right. was a very good impression. Um, but yeah, and and there's there's lots of miserable symptoms in it. So, one of the problems with the vaccination is it tends to wear off as you get older. So, there's a big push on getting pregnant women vaccinated against whooping cough at the moment because uh, we have seen an upswing. So, a quick reminder anyone you know pregnant, get them vaccinated. And obviously, all children should complete their full courses of childhood INS. So,
0: yeah. so, it can affect adults as well. Then, I mean, definitely like can hooping cough as being for kids, but
1: no, no, definitely, definitely one for adults, and it, it can be one of those things that suddenly somebody thinks, "I wonder if it's hooping cough," because it, it does drag on. But you have had a busy day, Steve. What's been going on with you? I think were, were, were you discussing assisted dying?
0: Uh, yeah, just just say on on hooping cough just to conclude. Um, UK security agencies say, looking at 2023 mm. up until the end of November there were 1,141 suspected cases in England and Wales compared with 450 oh. for the same period last year and about 450 for the same period in 2021. So that's a 250% increase. Yeah. So it's one to watch. Yeah, that busy is. day. Select Committee um, is... is discussing um still discussing assisted dying and uh we will be producing our report at some point uh, no more can i say okay. um but the to this week uh by the time this podcast comes out we'll have talked to the secretary of state for her first evidence session in front of the select committee and uh obviously we'll be talking about the junior doctors industrial action obviously they've announced uh nine more days of strikes and it's all oh. a right old mess in it
1: it's 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 really sad today, because when we spoke last time, we just had the consultants had agreed to take an on the consultants committee of the BMA had agreed to take a proposal out for consultation with members. And so consultant doctors are going to be voting imminently on an offer that's on the table. So we don't know if they'll accept it, but it's it's a positive signs so far. But this seems to have provoked an ab reaction. The junior doctors who walked away from talks is the way it's being reported, reported um, and have announced nine more strike days, as you say, a few three days before Christmas. But what really worries me is the six days in the new year. And it's sort of the coincide with the real start back to work from the 3rd of January onwards. And I mean, people are speaking out more now than they have done. I think a lot of medical leaders have been very cautious about speaking out up to this point. But we've had um people using phrases like, you know, the outcome the NHS was dreading and our worst fears confirmed. And, in fact, Amanda Pritchard, the chief executive of the NHS um, in England, said at NHS England board, I think it was last week, how deeply frustrating the situation has got. I mean, you know, it's – I think we all want to see this resolved.
0: Well, well. until we do, the Prime Minister is not, I mean, never mind stop the boats, the Prime Minister is not going to cut the waiting list until we sort it no. out. Um, and I, he obviously knows that more than anybody. Uh, other thing caught my eye, just, just want to touch on with you, is um, the government's sort of starting this legal process, which will sort of set new rules around the NHS roles of physician associates yes. and anaesthetic associates or anaesthesia yes. associates, and They're they're non-doctor jobs that need regulating for patient safety. Have I got that right?
1: You have. Yeah, absolutely. So they've been around a long time. So we've had uh, these sort of associate roles in the UK for at least 20 years. Um, So I think it was 2003 the first came to the UK. Um, They've been training programs in the UK for gosh, probably 15 years, I think, probably the, the first training programs were started. But the concept came from America, essentially highly qualified, Uh, healthcare professionals choosing to do additional training to become these physician associates where they take on new roles um, to work alongside doctors in providing clinical care. And there are a lot of them in the system already um, generally highly regarded there's been a real backlash in recent days about it, which perhaps we can come on to in a second. But this business of regulation, this was agreed back in 2019 that they needed to be a properly regulated body. So nurses are regulated by the Nursing and Midwifery Council, doctors of the General Medical Council, there's the General Dental Council, for dentists and so on. Um, and so finally, this legislation is coming before Parliament. I think it's the what they call the second reading, um, which is... Long, long overdue. And suddenly there's been a bit of a backlash, which I'm slightly bemused by.
0: Okay, yeah, well, um, we'll we'll see how that goes. I mean, the GMC have been writing to me uh, in my select committee role about it. So with that, I'll obviously get a lot of scrutiny when it comes through. Now, you rightly said that we were talking to Charlie uh, shortly. We'll introduce him shortly um, about men's health Uh, but you've got a cracking little men's health story for us Helen haven't you go on
1: well you know you know I'm Welsh if the accent doesn't give it away uh, we mention it occasionally but I've picked up on a great story in the news this last week about the little blue pill Viagra and I didn't realize that without lucky happenings in Merthyr Tydfil in the South Wales Valleys Viagra might never have made it to uh, public uh, reveal so And there's a documentary apparently coming up over Christmas, which I think people should look out for, because apparently it's been really well done. But the essential bit of the story is Pfizer, the drug company, were doing trials of the drug that's behind Viagra. um, And it was found as a side effect of completely unrelated research And the men of Merthyr Tidville sort of slightly sheepishly fed back that they'd noticed whilst they were on the trial drug um, that their, their erections were a lot better and sex was better. And could they hang on to the pills, please? So somebody in Pfizer thought, this sounds interesting, we should investigate. Um, and they did so, and further trials were done in Swansea, which is actually my hometown, um, and the good men of Swansea added to research, I think there was more done in Bristol as well, um, and, and the rest is history, the little blue pill was born.
0: Are you saying there's a problem in this part of Wales? With
1: <laughs> No, I'm just saying the men there were prepared to speak up and say, hey, this is great. They they saw it as a bonus. Certainly no, no, no criticism of them in any other way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a no boner, as they say. I mean, it's the, um, I mean, look, just let's talk Turkey. How much, how often does ED come into your surgery? When we were in Singapore uh, a few weeks ago, they were telling me what a big problem it is in in Southeast Asia in particular. And uh, there's various technology that, you know, they used to, Doctors basically used to ask you to, you know, tie a piece of paper around it and see whether the paper's broken in the morning to see whether you get a, a nocturnal erection oh. and uh, whether there's a physical problem or, or something else. Um, so they, there's all sorts of other technology now that's being deployed to to test that. But how, how big a problem is it's, it, you think, in the UK?
1: It's a massive problem but only a certain amount of it actually reaches the consulting room because so many men are desperately private and embarrassed and just won't talk about it. And so it's in the same way incontinence is uh, one of the problems where only a small proportion of it comes to the consulting room, uh, erectile dysfunction, and indeed sexual, a lack of sexual desire in women. All these are bundled up into what I call the, if they've reached the consulting room, we have to take them very seriously because people don't usually come to us Well, the problems of the start, they can, when things are established. I think with the arrival of Viagra and a whole suite of other drugs, plenty of other drugs are now available, um, then it has changed the narrative so that some men or men are being encouraged to come along by their partners uh, to get help. Um, And having help available, that was I guess, more socially acceptable than some of the other options. But I mean, there are, I think they talk about um, half of all men over the age of 40 um, are being affected by impotence in some way, shape or form. And that's a massive statistic. And of course, that affects self-esteem, leads to mental health issues, relationship issues. And, and it can be bundled with lots of other things as well. Um, it can be a marker of cardiovascular disease, diabetes. So, and there are some drugs that we give out that can reduce sexual function. So, what a conversation we need to be having more and more. And I think what's interesting to me is that some men wouldn't speak to a man about another problem, but will speak to a female GP. So sometimes people speak to, and other men will only speak to a man about it. And I think that's really interesting. I don't, I can't predict who it's going to be who'll talk to me and who won't talk to my male colleague and vice versa. But I think people, men should be reassured that, any healthcare professional, any GP is very comfortable talking about. Definitely. This. an
0: Interesting sign of what you say about, you know, men not want to talk about it, but maybe wanting to access the, the pill is that there was a, I went to pick up a prescription the other day and on the counter in the chemists was a box um, selling Viagras and the boxes that were in the little display stand, it said very clearly on the box, display box only, uh, because people presumably would, would grab them, them. And, yeah. and take them so so no it is a it's interesting what, what you say about it anyway it's called keeping it up obviously the story of viagra and uh, it's on on fourth of january it's on bbc oh, One, is it? oh, but it's, it it's already on the bbc iplayer so you can you can watch it if if that's your thing um let's have a break and then we'll introduce our guest special guest time Helen because it's episode 20 as we've already said and um we on the select committee as I think we've told you before are doing an inquiry the first time actually a parliamentary select committee has done anything on this for a long long time we're doing an inquiry on men's health as I've told you and um you know we're looking at all these issues around you know why men have worse life expectancy and actually that's that gap is growing um men's mental health and sexual health which we talked to touched on before and um We started the inquiry on the Select Committee last week, and one of the guests that we had on the Select Committee, who we really enjoyed having on, is Charlie Bethel. And Charlie joins us now. And Charlie is Chief Shedder. So he's the Chief Executive of the Men's Shed Association. Uh, Hi, Charlie.
2: Hi, uh, thanks for inviting me.
0: Now, Helen, are you familiar with the sheds?
1: I am familiar with the Sheds because of course my background with the National Academy of Social Prescribing, Men's Sheds has been one of those um, sparkling organisations that has been held up as a fantastic exemplar of how we reach groups of people who are otherwise really difficult to reach. So whilst I've never met you before, Charlie, and it's fab to have you on the podcast, um, it's, it's an organisation I have huge respect for. and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it.
0: Uh, Charlie, the first question, most
2: important one is, is Helen allowed in the shed? She'll be allowed about 40% of them. Um, oh. So About 40% do allow women. There may be women-only sessions, but, yeah, they, they do allow women.
0: Right. So where did this come from? Where did Men's Sheds
2: come from? Was it your idea? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's an Australian <laughs> one. Um, right. the, the, the Australians were struggling with the health of um, some of the farmers, mainly people living in remote areas. And so they wanted to put an intervention together to try and stop antisocial behaviour, alcoholism, and suicide, so they came up with the men's sheds. I mean, it, it isn't a a new concept. There, there was an organisation called Sons of Man in the seventies and sixties in the UK, um, but it, it does replace things that have disappeared, like working men's clubs. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it, it's 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 the Australians we have to thank for it. But coming from a sporting background, that doesn't it's not easy for me to say.
0: No, I would <laughs> say that sticks in the uh, sticks in the craw quite significantly. Certainly, um, but but you know what what's the purpose of it here? I mean, you you said to us on Select Committee last week that everybody, all the members sitting around the Select Committee table, had a shed within. I think you said fifteen minutes or so of our of our constituencies, often within. Um, how, how many of them are there now across England?
2: So um, across the UK, there's eleven hundred and eighty. Um, so it's about it's about nine. Well, probably about eight hundred in England. About a hundred in, in Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, and then Scotland has about 180 as well. So yeah, it, make, it makes 1180. My maths isn't the best in the world. Um, but, um, the, uh, and people go to them to make stuff. That's, that's the simplicity of it.
0: To make stuff. I like it. So we're all about prevention of, of ill health. You know, that's the purpose of the podcast clue is in the name. And, um, you know you talk about your health your well-being support so can we just sort of start off and then we bring in yeah. Helen's thoughts what do you what role do you think you can play in that space
2: i think i think it's it's not what i think i think it's what they do so sheds by bringing people together it creates a safe space um for them to talk and um, and we find men will talk shoulder to shoulder uh, and in doing that um they're a lot more open to to also talking about health. I'll I'll give you the example that that I use at the select committee, but we use, if you put 12 men in a square room and ask them to talk about their feelings, six will go, and the other six will try to find the corners of the room. And being men, we're not very good at the maths on foreign students. (laughs) But um, if you put a lawnmower in the middle of the room and ask them to fix it, after after two hours, they'll know each other intimately. They'll know what their names, their children's names, grandchildren's names, what ails them, and how, how they take their tea. Um, and and it's that having a central purpose um, that brings those men together and they can be doing things on their own in the shed or they can be doing things in a group maybe making something for the community but we've seen reductions in anxiety, depression, loneliness, new friendships connected to the community Um, but also we've seen a lot of physical um, benefits as well. What
0: do you reckon doctor?
1: I just love this so this this accords so much to so, so Charlie I'm a frontline general practitioner as well as a huge heap of other stuff that I do and you know I was in clinical practice yesterday and I had a man in the consulting room and I I have a, you know I've, I've got to know him over time so he trusts me and he still struggles to articulate what's really going on and he's gone through some serious trauma and for, and for him actually it's his workplace and he's found some work colleagues who've reached out and who sort of managed to find a way of doing this but i see so many men really struggling with this and i love your me- your metaphor about you put 12 men in a room and ask them to talk about their feelings to say to be honest i'd have said most of them would screaming at the prospect um and actually although there are some people who some men particularly who, who can share their feelings more openly i would say the majority can't and this isn't just an, an older age or a generational thing i think this cuts across the generations um and i think there are specific challenges that men at different ages are facing whether it's younger men coping with huge insecurities loneliness about having relocated and left home um often a huge amount of health anxiety whether it's relationship work problems people these crazy stereotypes we have in society about men needing to be the strong one the provider the protector and then it's loneliness as you said particularly in older men or people who aren't in relationships and when they haven't got their career and their jobs to sustain them and finding this huge void and emptiness and I guess for me there's been a, a diminution in the role of families and connections and also in religious organizations in society and these leave bigger and bigger gaps so do you feel that, the, I mean, you've mentioned 1180. That's amazing. What's the plans to expand this? Have you got good backing? What's next?
2: Yeah, so we're just developing the new strategy. Um, and the target for us is is 2,500 sheds. So we, we've looked at the stats. We believe you could put a shed in where there's a population of 4,000 um, or more. Um, and that's where sheds are working well. There's two, for instance, in Orkney. Um wow you know if orkney can have two then then lots of lots of other towns can have two as well so um and you know other things as well, in terms of the influencing agenda, so it was it was great to be called as a witness uh, to the select committee because it's not only men's sheds working, it's the way we work, it's the autonomy of those sheds that is a really good and economical model um to use um we don't you know our turnover is in the region of two hundred and fifty thousand at the moment a year um and you know that's i I was talking to somebody from red cross yesterday we're quite surprised of how small that is yeah to to other national charities with the reach i mean we don't fund the sheds we do help them you know with part of our role is to try and support them in areas of fundraising or or others uh, around health particularly coordination policies setting up um but it's um, it's also to to build that that resource and and the support that we give to sheds. So sheds get a lot of discounts through us. We're able to broker those relationships. But there's other bits of support that sheds receive as well, and and we're looking at how we can add more value to those those people that are running the sheds because yeah. they need support as well, um, and we need more of them. Sheds, many sheds are at capacity.
1: Um, is there space for health? I mean, you've talked about the loneliness side of it, and certainly I've seen it from the mental health point of view, and, and I see it as a really great help in terms of suicide reduction. But you, you, you touched on physical health. I mean, what is there anything specific you do? Is there a programme, or there are, are there areas where it would be great to have other connections to bring health promotion to the sheds?
2: Yeah, yeah. So we, we're often, I mean, I was approached yesterday by another cancer charity about uh, they're struggling to connect to men. And so... Yeah. Can, the, can we work with you as men sheds? Um one example I gave was um, um there's a guy who was who lost his sight in one eye in one of the sheds in in and then um he started losing his sight in the other eye. Oh. And you know, a high proportion of sight loss can be prevented. And the shedders didn't like what was going on. He wouldn't go to the doctors, he wouldn't go to the chemists as a you know called a fulfilling the stereotype of, of being male. <laughs> um They marched him down. They looked up what he might have. They took him down to the doctors. They supported him through that. He's got sight back in both eyes. Wow! Um, And so there's one example of a a physical change. Um, You know, there are some walking groups attached to some sheds. But another piece that they do is um, prostate cancer support. So we we do a lot of work with different charities creating resources that are palatable to, to those in the sheds. And so the shed leaders might introduce them at the lunch break um and there's an example of a guy from a from a shed in um, Richmond that he went to that they eventually got the guy to go to the doctors and he came out with a a prescription for something completely different because when he got there it was a female doctor and so you know it goes back to what you were saying um you know they have got him going back to the doctors again and this time (laughs) they booked an appointment with a with a man um which you know it's it's we're able to introduce those conversations you know sheds often have a conversation around suicide we did a survey start of the year and 39 percent of sheds that fed back it was 178 sheds replied different sheds and uh, 39 percent of them believe they'd saved a life or may have saved a life but by sending out that questionnaire to them they were having the conversations so one shed phoned us and said two mornings we've spent on that questionnaire because the guys all sat around and talked about health for the first time, yeah. that was they worried about their wife's dementia or um, a bereavement and how that's had an impact on them. And those things would never happen in general society.
0: It's interesting, uh, isn't it? Because when you're doing something, you're, you're distracted, but you're focused. So I know bringing up boys as I am, or one boy, um, is that if we're doing something and I ask him what's going on, how how's this going how's that going i'm more likely to get engagement from it than if i just sit down face to face and say so what's going on and that's the, that's the shoulder to shoulder thing you're talking about isn't it have you ever had um local doctors go into men's sheds to help make something and talk to men about their health just casually as they're going
2: no, not not in that way. I mean, we do have doctors that are in sheds um, or former doctors, so but not in a specific intervention. Because I think it's about them getting used to to being involved in the shed. And you've got to. I mean, it, it would be a very good training point for some some medical practitioners because mm. it's about language. And um, there was a there was a guy in a shed I, I was chatting to, and he was telling me about how he, when he retired, he struggled after the honeymoon period. He struggled um and he then went on from the shed to volunteer in other organizations when the person i was meeting came in who was a young lady who was one of our sponsors he said ah oh, she asked him the same question and he said oh yeah i was at a loose end um and men will talk about things in a different way and i know it's reported on ons that that loneliness affects women more than it does men mm. but it might be that the men it's not asking the right question or in the right yeah. answer. um so you you yeah we'd have to be careful. I mean that there could be some really good learning there. We do have some charities go in and talk to sheds, um, either directly or in uh, networks. So again, prostate cancer use that network quite well that we've got. Um, we don't have those networks everywhere yet. Um, they take time to to develop, um, but it's about just getting that trust. And and it, you know it might take. There was there was one guy and it took him, but. Uh, about six months before he started talking to anybody else in the shed. And then afterwards he was talking to the shed leader and, you know, again, one of the examples where he said, you know, it saved my life coming here. You know, I'd, I'd have, I'd have ended it. Um, so there's some immediate life saving that goes on, but you know, the 30,000 plus people in the sheds, you know, there's a lot of preventative stuff going on that, that we great. will know about. We'll never know it's, about. It's it. great. It's I'm it's so awesome. glad
0: we got you on. I mean, what's the best thing you've seen made in a shed, Charlie? <laughs>
2: I, I I um I think there's some carvings, tanhouse um shed um mm. do some incredible, incredible carvings, chess sets we've seen. Some of the wood turning is absolutely phenomenal. Um the the um I mean and, and they teach you tricks that you've never seen. So you, you turn a piece of wood when it's green, so it's still wet, mm. and then you see it completely um deform. But so you've got a bowl that's a completely irregular nice. shape.
0: Have you ever seen someone use the side of a hammer? Do you, do you know? Do you know I, why I'm asking that, Charlie?
2: I I I, I might have an idea because I got messages from colleagues of mine. <laughs> I think else I do from Switzerland, first of all, to tell me that about that.
1: Um, tell me, but this all about the the size of a hammer for the
0: listeners' pleasure. The Prime Minister, bless him, went to a um, a workshop in West Yorkshire uh, last month, and he was doing a visit, and he was asked to do something with a hammer, and they said, "I oh, know, use that bit." And he what the side of it, and like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he started using the hammer by by Tapping the side of the hammer onto the nail, and of course this went viral as oh my god he doesn't know how to use a hammer, but actually he was asked to do it that way. But I've never seen anyone use the side of a hammer. I mean, it's logical because it'd be easier. You can
1: use any bit of a hammer, surely. You use mm. the bit that drives the nail and whatever in the best way you do, but just choose the size of the hammer.
2: I, That's I what, what he did. What worries me is that he was actually asked to do that by somebody instructing. Well, me. Um, <clears> yeah. In Birmingham, Birmingham, where I'm from originally, um, you know, we use them as screwdrivers, but. Uh,
1: <laughs> No, no. <laughs> Talking my language, Charlie.
0: Just hit the screw hard. Just yeah.
2: hit it harder.
1: <laughs> you need a bigger hammer. Uh,
2: so, what do you what do you reckon the future is of the sheds, then, Charlie? Um, I I see them, and we see it in some places, developing into more of a community hub as well. So they're warm spaces right. for people in in the current climate. Um, you know, when it gets cold. But I I we've seen some um, Froom shed, for instance, is part of the whole Froom project.
1: Oh, Froom is awesome.
2: Yeah, where social prescribing is really well connected with lots of activity. And we can sit we see that happening more. Um and you know, the, the 88% of shedders felt more connected to the community um by joining a shed. And I think that community piece uh we will only see see happen more and more. And it is very much like the big society that that yeah. Cameron talked about, um, but in but in reality, really happening. Um so yeah, we we can only see them see them getting better. The then, um, sorry,
1: no, I'm saying I'm guessing a chunk of funding wouldn't go amiss either, Charlie. I mean, you know, if there are any big donors listening out there, I can't. There are a few things that can have greater impact. I mean, I think this is awesome stuff.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, and the value of sheds. We're we're looking to try and get a piece of work done. It, it, I mean, it's all about cost, but on the social value of a shed, the economic value of a shed, because you know. You know, not only what they do themselves it's when they're making things for the community for schools I mean one shed made 17 xylophones for a school um wow. they couldn't afford any unfortunately for the kids they then played them to them but um <laughs> but you know they, they do an awful lot whether it's fitting out charity um uh storage areas with shelving or making planters at railway stations So, um, you know, it's trying to see the value of that, but yes, no, absolutely some core what's difficult to get is funding for the core delivery of of what we do and, um, and the planning, you know, because every 12 months you're, when you're relooking at the budget, it's, you know, have we got that coming in? Do we take the risk of continuing with that piece of work? Um, and there's just so much more we could do. There's so much yeah. more around our house. So life.
0: I've got three in my constituency, Helen. Uh and wow. common, Kingsworthy, and Alsford. And I have visited the the Kingsworthy one and very, very good it was too. And I think there's sort of a myth, isn't there, that men's sheds are for older guys. Maybe that's not true. Maybe that's true. You can tell me. And then what would what just just finally sort of coming to a close, Charlie? What if you don't have a men's shed near you? Presumably your answer is start one.
2: Yeah. So um to the uh, yeah to, to to that question start one we can help we have we have manuals we have guidance we have volunteers who will come and help set them up as well um, so the, the, there's an awful lot um, that can be done there to the first question that I've already forgotten um, are they for older geezers um, some sheds are so some sheds were set up with over fifties in in mind we've seen since covid a lot more younger people joining sheds. So they won't yeah. necessarily accept people because they're worried about keeping the culture that they've got. And more sheds are looking at opening on evenings now um, Good. And, and on weekends because they recognise that demand from their communities. Um, but you know, some sheds, because of the rule of six, sheds started to open more days um, during, during the coming out of lockdown. And uh, which is a really positive thing that's happened. Yeah. Sheds, but they've just filled up. it's fantastic
1: so sorry i'm conscious we're we're running out of time with you charlie but it's been great um I would imagine there'd be a lot of younger guys who would learn from more experienced guys. And especially these sort of practical skills you're talking about. I've been fascinated how there's been a cultural shift in what people have learned how to use power tools, how to how to work in a shed and work in a workshop environment. I mean, I, I was brought up with a dad who believed that girls should be treated the same as boys, and I was taught how to use a screwdriver properly and a hammer properly and how to put them back and look after them. But but that's absolutely not a cultural thing that's continuing is
2: it no no it isn't and we do find teachers come in to some sheds and ask for help you know how do i do this i've got to go and teach it i've never been you know what are the skills and we have some sheds that go and support um listed buildings so they they support builders with fixing listed buildings and we're looking to possibly do a project with the national trust where we we embed sheds in their properties and to help with the maintenance fantastic that's you know in discussions at the moment so love it i, make I do-
0: love it it's yeah. brilliant we're so glad you come Thank on you. all right Menssheds.org.uk, and i'm sure you can find them on social media and uh you know go to a sh- check out a shed near you you might find charlie in there using a hammer the right way around you never know <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks charlie thanks, thanks charlie you. Bye. bye <laughs>
0: Hey Charlie, Charlie Bethel, shoulder to shoulder, Helen. He's all he's right,
1: he? He was great. Really loved that. I love the shoulder sh- to shoulder uh, descriptor. I think that's so appropriate. And uh, I was just just thinking about my husband and his shed. Oh, he loves his shed. He really does. Oh, I should call it his workshop. He's even got the floor painted with floor paint so that you know there's no dust and things. It's it's a a work of art.
0: It's wonderful. No, he was really interesting. And I mean, I, I just think they've done such a great thing with men's sheds. And I I, you know, said about visiting one in my constituency, and I, I would love to visit the others because mm. I find I find it actually it's quite an interesting shoulder to shoulder time for an MP mm. as well, because it's amazing yeah. how people will open up and talk to you when you're uh, hammering with the wrong or right side of the hammer anyway um that was great to have him on and uh lovely to lovely to talk with you helen uh we've had 20 episodes uh since we started this i can't believe it's it, we, we we're we doing so well and thanks so much to everyone who listens we really really appreciate your support and getting in touch with us you can find us on social media you can email podcast stevebrine.com. i think this is our last episode before christmas
1: it, it is so let me throw in the gp bit before christmas Get your prescriptions ordered early because, you know, your GP surgery will be closed over the bank holidays and it's always a last minute scramble. Please look after yourselves. Infectious diseases are on the rise. And if, if prevention is the new cure, then you can prevent many infectious diseases by taking some of the precautions that we did during the pandemic. If you've got a stinky cold, please keep away from other people. Keep your hands washed and clean. And most of all, have a lot of fun over the festive period, but do it with a little hint of moderation.
0: Okay, well, thanks for your company this year, Helen, and everyone listening, and, um, you know, God bless, and happy Christmas, happy new year.
1: Yeah, have a great one, everybody, and we'll see you in 2024. Bye.
0: Bye.